Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I want to welcome our audience back to the Prestige series, podcast series of Our New Normal. And audience, man, I am so excited. We have a powerful woman who's going to give us some information of how the pandemic has increased virtual learning. And she's going to discuss with us the pros and cons, the differences between in-person and virtual learning. She's going to be sharing her opinion about how Virtual learning has allowed our communities to have additional access to education. And while in-person learning is unavailable. So um, with no further ado, I want to introduce everyone to Dr. Lois B. Palin. Dr. Palin, how are you? And welcome to our show. Well, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm, we're so excited to hear uh, from our expert, uh, her experience. <laughs> Before we begin, though, I need to remind the audience that this uh, podcast series is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and here in Washington, D.C., um, Trustees Community Resources, and SAMS. And so we're delighted that, of, of regarding the investment uh, that has been made to get the information out to the community. But Dr. Palin, um, I would like you to introduce yourself. And we normally begin by asking you to share a little bit about yourself personally, and maybe a little bit about yourself professionally. Um, so why don't we start from where were you born and how were you raised and what school did you go to? And uh, Sure, not a problem. I actually was um, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Far from there now, I, I moved out of New York when I was um, in my early 20s, which has been quite a while ago. So I'm not even sure if I still identify with being a Brooklynite. I don't have the accent, anymore, yes. but <laughs> um, I've been in the Washington, Washington DC area for, for many, many years. And most of my academic and um, work life has been here in the Washington DMV. I understand your focus has been professionally on education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, but my I, I, Right now, I'm in the education arena in higher education. I am the senior director for the Center for Security Studies at University of Maryland Global Campus. We used to be uh, UMUC. We're now UMGC. Mm. And um, my responsibilities are mainly for supporting the university's activities that relate to it being a center for academic excellence in cybersecurity. So while I'm doing that now, a lot of my um, career at UMGC was in the environment of teaching and curriculum development. So um, over the last 10, 15 years, I was involved in creating our cybersecurity master's degree program. And like now I'm much more concerned about um, using our leverage as a university to to garner and to uh, apply for scholarships that are available for students who are interested in cybersecurity academics and, and cybersecurity careers. But as a little bit of background, I, I got into cybersecurity uh, because of my technical background. So before I came to the university, I worked at, uh, in, the in the media industry. I, I was a longtime employee at the Washington Post Company long way back when um, it was data processing and we were doing punch card programming and things like that. That goes way back. But mm -hmm. where I got all of my technical background in software development, project management, uh, networking uh, and network support and um, some, some of the other technical areas. So I've had a wide range of, of, of experiences here in the Washington area working in uh, information systems which morphed into cybersecurity 
And as I retired from the Washington Post, I got into education and that's how I wound up at UMGC. And like I said, uh, for the most part, I taught undergraduate and graduate cybersecurity and technology courses. But now for the last three or so years, the focus has been on supporting our student body and getting involved actually with the K-12 community because of the workforce needs of cybersecurity. They're very great and we wanna make an impact. Yes, Dr. Palin, can you define for us or describe to us what is cybersecurity? Is that? that? That's a good question. And it really does depend on who you ask. I was called today um, and, and just about every day, um, I'm, we, we're answering questions about whether is cybersecurity a technical um, career or is it a non-technical career? Could it be uh, used in dif different disciplines? But I think what cybersecurity has morphed into is making sure that our systems and our people are secure when we're online. That's, that's the nutshell. That's a very uh, large umbrella under which a lot of different things fall, like networking on the technical side. It's making sure that networks are secure, making sure that uh, you know, people are protecting their passwords and their data and their privacy. So there's a whole list of things on the technical side, um, taking, making sure that there are reducing vulnerabilities in your systems so that hackers can't get in. So on the technical side, cybersecurity is, is um, th there's a lot and there's a lot of careers that are involved. But on the non-technical side also, there are management and policy and uh, cybersecurity awareness things that need to be done that are not so technical. Um, you have to be able to um, take in, into consideration the human factors of cybersecurity, making sure that you, the user, are not causing viruses, uh, introducing viruses into systems. Um, there's just another side of cybersecurity that's not so technical that there, once again, there are lots of uh, career opportunities in that arena also. So cybersecurity, to answer your question, it's such a big topic that it, uh, it really does cover quite a few disciplines, subjects, and technical and non-technical things. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing. You know, about a year ago when uh, the pandemic uh, uh, was announced and uh, of course, behavioral health clinics had to make some critical decisions around how we're going to provide service. Um, and most agencies, clinics went through a telehealth um, format. Uh, are there some concerns uh, or should clinics be interested in cybersecurity and what that means as they provide telemedicine? Is there some relationship there? Sure, it, it, most, most definitely. Um, there has always been a, a major concern about cybersecurity in the healthcare industry. And it goes from um, you know, privacy issues with your medical health records and someone hacking into that for various reasons to um, worrying about um, you know, infusion systems in hospitals, whether someone can hack into, um, into the equipment that's used in hospitals in a nefarious way. So healthcare has always been um, an industry that has been impacted by cybersecurity and definitely um, there, are, there, there are many concerns about, um, uh, so you mentioned telehealth. So telehealth, mm -hmm. kind of, the cybersecurity issues related to telehealth are the same ones that we were concerned about with teachers and students mm -hmm. online. There are nefarious people out there who might want to do things um, when they when they can have access to your virtual environment. Yes, you know I know the behavioral health clinics had to ensure that the Zoom accounts that they use were HIPAA compliant, so we're not using just the general um, layperson Zoom accounts. We have to have some heightened security there. Um, and when you talk about privacy as well, we, we also have to uh, be concerned where we're providing the service, the therapy or the space, I mean, who has access to the space. And privacy is very, very important. Um, what are your thoughts about virtual learning and how that relates to the pandemic? 
Um, many students now are learning remotely and uh, I've heard all kinds of reactions from students uh, pro and, and not so favorable around learning in that style. What are your thoughts? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about it because on one hand, um, as I mentioned, I've taught online at University of Maryland Global Campus for years. We've been a virtual environment um, since I can remember. And I actually uh, took some courses there too. I was a student there. So for a long time, many, many years, I've been in a virtual learning environment. You know, with that, we do very well. Um, we have all, many, many things in place to make sure that students are getting the support that they need. Um, we're making sure that faculty are engaged. It's always very important for the faculty be, to be engaged in a virtual environment. We don't want the students to think that they're taking a correspondence course. There's somebody there to lead them through the course. So uh, from a UMGC standpoint in a university that's been virtual for several years, I think we do a very good job with that. Um, and, and I mentioned faculty engagement because I think that's the number one thing that gives the student, a virtual student satisfaction with their course. They have a, a teacher there. They know that they can ask questions, that the, the faculty member is responds in a reasonable amount of time. So that is just one of the number one factors of being successful in a virtual environment. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I've also been involved in some K-12 activities. And my, my daughter, she teaches uh, math online. So she gave me a lot of information. And, and since we're all together, we, I can see some of the issues that she faces in teaching um, a, a high school students who are accustomed to being in a face-to-face -face environment. And so my opinion about, uh, about that is I think being thrust into that environment is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a technology person, so I'm going to say I am happy that people are now being faced with what they thought they knew about technology and realize what they don't know now and how much there is for them to learn. I'm yeah. happy that people are, um, uh, are, are getting that, that uh, reason to be able to make some changes in the way they use technology. Uh, I think, you know, we talk a lot about the digital divide, and I totally understand there are people who don't have the appropriate technologies, but I think it's also a push for people to obtain those things. There are lots of opportunities for uh, students to get the technology and tools that they need to be in a virtual environment, and I think that is a good thing. Yes. Um, but I, I totally understand, uh, talking to my daughter in her class, you know, these high school students are not quite um, as tech savvy as we thought they were. Mm. You know, things that she uh, mentioned to me was that, you know, some students, uh, if you want them to cut and paste something from uh, a document and put it in into the learning management system, some of them are not even capable of doing that. So, so we're we're uncovering some of the things that we thought. Uh, students had, but we're finding out that some of them is not as tech savvy as they uh, as they should be. Um, and, and let me give you an example. She she uh, in 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 the higher education environment and in the K through twelve, using video is a is is something that's uh, useful to students. Uh, in the uh, higher ed arena, we use videos to reinforce learning. We use video to meet with the students in a synchronous way. Um, so video is used quite a bit. In the K-12 arena, my daughter is trying to uh, make the, her students understand that a video is almost as good as her being online uh, right away uh, in a face-to-face -face environment. But what they're having difficulty with is, of course, it's very difficult them to sit down and listen to a 20-minute video but they would listen to her, uh, her, her talking to them personally for 20 mm -hmm. minutes. There's Certainly. a subtle difference in that they have problems sitting and listening to the video for 20 minutes. And it's hard to get across to them that a video, uh, the technology is that you could listen to some of it, stop, take some notes, come back and listen to some more and take some notes. So it's just small things like that that uh, we're discovering that these that some of the students are not really thinking through the use of the technology in a virtual environment the way they could. Yes, 
you know, I've had a lot of discussions with my peers, other therapists, facilitate uh, intervention. Uh, prior to the pandemic, it was primarily in person, you know, group therapy, individual therapy. And now most of us have gone to a telehealth format. And the therapists, my peers, have talked about uh, the challenge they have professionally of performing a service in isolation, um, being alone, um, and not feeling a, a connectedness with the patients, with the consumers with whom we provide the service. I'm curious to know about the professors and trainers and teachers, what is their experience uh, providing instruction remotely? Can you describe that for us? Sure, and I, uh, I once again, with different perspectives from a uh, higher ed standpoint where a student registers for a course knowing that they're not going to physically meet the faculty. They may be in different states. They may be, even be in different countries. Mm. That, that um, expectation of just meeting the faculty member online, it, it kind of reduces some of the anxiety that a student may have. But if you look at, you know, in the K-12 arena, these um, children have met their, their, their teachers. They've been in the same room with them. They know them personally. So taking that away and moving mm -hmm. to a virtual environment seems to be a difficult, difficult thing for many, many students to, to handle. I mean, um, you know, it, it, the, I think it's not only the personal aspect of it, but mm -hmm. um, it, there's another uh, level of, of interference, I would say, when the student is at home, they may have things going on in the home that the teacher doesn't even realize is going on. Um, my daughter gave me an example of one of her students, you know, if they're on mute, uh, you really can't hear a lot of what's going on. But if the child hits the uh, unmute button, you can realize that their parents and their other children in the room and the student has a lot going on that could be distracting for them. So, you know, I, I, I'm saying all that to say, it, it, I guess it depends on, even with telehealth, um, you know, if, if I'm having a telehealth meeting with my doctor and everybody in my family is in the room, that is a different experience than me meeting with him in his office or her office. So it has a lot to do with the environment that the person is in and, and whether they can actually be in an environment where they can focus on what's going on on the screen. You're absolutely right. Uh, we have to be sensitive to the fact, particularly when working with children, that they may be living in chaotic environments. And not only that, they're responding to those environments at the time of the intervention. So mom and dad are there. Mom and dad may be the perpetrator of abuse. And, and, and they're relating to just their presence while trying to re receive therapy. And so that, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you that um, you have to factor in where the student or the client is. Um, and it's hard to assess that through that camp. It's really hard to gauge the influence and how that may be promoting learning or distracting learning. Do you think students do better in the classroom or uh, virtually? What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, speaking of uh, higher ed and adults, mm -hmm. I think that it's um, everybody has a different learning style. Everybody has different learning styles. So there are some people who to this day will refuse to take a virtual online class because they feel like they need to have that interaction. And with that, um, many colleges have a hybrid courses. So half of the courses are online and half of the courses you can meet the instructor at a class in the classroom environment. So um, I think everybody respects the fact that there are some people who just need to have that face-to-face -face learning and learning instruction. On, in the K-12 arena, you know, there, there are lots of factors. I think they, the, the children are not accustomed to being at home uh, and, uh, and not around their friends and um, seeing their teacher, being able to go outside during uh, recess with their, with their um, other students. So I think, I think it really has much more of an impact on, in the K-12 environment than in higher ed. Um, once again, my daughter was telling me that the, her, the school that she's at has already set up an environment. It started out for special ed kids, 
or who who wanted to who needed to be in that environment more than others. But now it's actually open to any any parent or student who feels that they need to at least be around other students. Um, surprisingly, she said though, is that not many parents are taking them up on that. Parents are not, I don't think for the most part, ready to send their children back to the classroom. It's interesting. I uh, was participating in a webinar with some other uh, mental health professionals and uh, it was sponsored by Montgomery County Schools and uh, the goal was to help, uh, what were to learn more from the uh, parent perspective, the stress related to homeschooling and virtual learning and having your child uh, fully engaged uh, throughout the, the order day. And um, one of the messages that came through clearly is the parent and the student generally had to sit at the same table. I mean, they actually had to, uh, because it was the, the parent that was kind of prompting them and directing them and keeping them invested. Uh, when the student was at an, another part of the house or the home, uh, they were easily distracted often off task and it was difficult to pull them into consistent instruction um and so there is a lot of um distraction in, in certain circumstances that prevent learning uh, the schools are closed uh, and everyone's trying to get back to 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 a new normal uh do you believe the students the school system should open up and, and attempt to encourage uh classroom activity yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated, so I'm excited about that. And I think that's going to have an impact on people being able to get back into uh, their normal, somewhat normal environments. Um, but I do think it's important because I, I respect the fact that, you know, there are different learning styles and our K-12 students need that interaction. Um, I think there are many, many who could, who with the appropriate resources um, could, could excel and not go back into the classroom. But I think mm -hmm. for the most part, it, it is, uh, it's a good thing for our students to get back into the classroom. Now, the issue though, once again, is whether teachers are feeling comfortable enough to go back into the classroom. I, mm -hmm. I have to respect that if I were a teacher, I think I might be concerned about being in a classroom um, full of students at this point in time. You know, I'm an old school therapist. So when we had to um, uh, convert into a telehealth model, I was very resistant. Um, there was some learning, there was a learning curve I had to undergo. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't imagine relating to my patients through this video screen, uh, but there was safety in doing that. So I'm on board. Uh, but now I'm considering what is it going to look like for me and my level of comfort going back into the clinic, providing one-on-one -on -one and particularly group therapy. I'm sitting in a group room with maybe 10 consumers. Um, and although they may be safe and confident and not necessarily impacted by um, the experience we're just coming out of, I'm, I am a therapist. And so I appreciate how the, the, the trainers and teachers and professors will, will possibly present with a, some level of anxiety upon the return. And I wonder how that's gonna translate and how that's gonna play out actually in the classroom. What, what, what do you think are the possibilities of how the, the trainers, professors, teachers will now relate to students in this new? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, of, of course, you know, there are plenty of CDC guidelines that the schools and, and, and organizations have to adhere to that mm -hmm. promote safety for, for the uh, teachers. I think, you know, I, I hear um, arguments on both sides. I hear some students, uh, some teachers saying, I just cannot wait to get back into the classroom and see my students. I miss them so much. Um, I just want to get back and I'd be happy to, um, one of the things that our president says is that things, one, the only thing that we can count on is that things are not going to stay the same as they are right this minute. Everyone is not going to be at home teleworking. But in to that, when you get back, it's truly still not going to be the same as it was before. And I really believe that. I think that, you know, there are uh, going to have to be some accommodations made. 
Mm-hmm. Um, your teachers will um, be happier with smaller classrooms, uh, which will probably benefit our students anyway. But, um, you know, it's just, it's just going to be a new normal, as they say, that we're going to have to be, become accustomed to. You know, I have a son in his first year of college, and um, he's not a very focused student. Uh, he needs a lot of encouragement and needs a lot of reminders. Uh, but when he was forced to go to virtual learning, um, it really impacted his focus and his grades went down a little bit. And he actually has become less confident with his ability to learn and master material. And so during the season, I've, I've seen him withdraw a little bit. And uh, uh, again, I'm interested to see how that's gonna play out for him as we return back to classroom. Is the, the, the loss of confidence gonna uh, follow him back into the classroom and he may not be able to perform as well? Uh, so well, I'll be paying attention to that as a, as a father. Right. Well, I think uh, our kids are more resilient than we give them credit for. Uh, so I heard uh, a report on the news, I think it was just yesterday, that they were saying that, you know, there are so many, there are going to be so many children who have just kind of lost a whole year of, of, of education and training. And, you know, I maybe, but I do think that, um, once again, our children are resilient. I think once they're much more resilient than we are. Yeah. Once they get back into the swing of things with school, I don't. I think they'll catch up. I, I just have no doubt that, um, yeah, it's been a crazy year. I've seen uh, other students, college students, who have, you know, kind of withdrawn and not been able to pull it all together when they thought they were going to be away at college with, you know, with their friends. And all of that just came to a halt. I totally believe the resiliency in our children will win. Yeah, the cost of tuition is um, constantly increasing. And I'm wondering if, if, if the students are getting the same value for their book now that they're learning virtually. Are they receiving the same level of uh, instruction? Um, you know, that's an, that's an excellent question. And without naming names, um, I have seen students take courses at you know, very expensive colleges and some at community colleges and comparing them, once again, it all falls back on the faculty member. It, if, the, if the instructor was a good instructor in the classroom, in a face-to-face classroom, they, that fell over into their virtual environment and they did an excellent job. If the teacher was not the greatest teacher anyway, that came out in a virtual environment. My concern is that, you know, I'm just hoping that colleges and universities are not using this as as an opportunity to, you know, hire anyone that they think, not all all professors who taught face-to-face can teach in a virtual environment. You just can't pick one up and throw them in the virtual environment and think it's gonna be successful. That is not the case. I've seen evidence of that. Okay. Um, they, there's a lot of instruction and professional development that has to come into play to take a teacher who's been teaching face-to-face and have them teach in a virtual environment. You just can't pick one up and drop it in the other. Um, well, the teacher, the professors may need some additional training and support on how to, use, how to use technology to deliver the, yeah. All right, most definitely. I mean, I've seen teachers who taught in the face-to-face environment, teach, come to teach in the virtual environment, and they think all they have to do is just throw some assignments up and have you do those assignments and grade them. There's no interact, interaction with the instructor. There's no discussion topics that can be addressed. So it's all about you know, the, the uh, level of experience and training that the professor has to make this, the course successful. Well, one of the disadvantages I think for virtual learning or just working remotely is it's hard to um, appreciate the personality uh, of the facilitator. Sometimes I kind of gets lost through technology, you know, the vibe that you get, the the passion. um, Can you speak to that? Oh, we're on pause. Dr. Palin, would you describe the workload and assignments uh, that are given virtually versus in class to be equivalent? 
Um, or is there a difference in just the workload in the assignments? That's a good question because um, for a long time, when we were ramping up our um, virtual environment with faculty, a lot of instructors thought that it was going to be easy street teaching online. And, but I think over time, and even this has been my experience is that I think uh, teaching online is for the, the, the workload for the instructor seems to be more. Uh, students tend to think that you're available 24 seven. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, um, students who were, you know, in other time zones who would ask questions and expect an answer at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. So um, I think the workload is not, it, it's not, it's it spread out over time more than it is if you're going to a classroom, you teach from, you know, nine to three and then it's over. Uh, I think in the virtual environment, things get spread out a little bit more and uh, the workload for the instructor seems to be, um, seems to be increased. On the student side though, um, you know, once again, it, it depends on how the course is structured. I think that, um, I, I, I think that there's an opportunity for the teacher to put more uh, information online for the student to read or to watch. Um, and it's up to the student to spend that time on it. But I think as far as assignments, you know, in the, in the K-12 arena, there are standards that teachers have to teach by. So I would think that the amount of work pretty much stays the same. It's just that there's, um, there's a level of, there's an opportunity to put more information out there for the students to help them uh, with their studies. Is it required that the students uh, keep their videos on at all times? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't think, uh, well, in the higher ed environment, um, that's not a requirement. Be and, and in higher ed, where I teach, a lot of the courses are asynchronous. So we're rarely online like this, you know, speaking to each other. It's more of an asynchronous environment where an assignment is given and you can go off and do the assignment and submit it. However, if the teacher has office hours, you might be face-to-face, -face, but, um, you know, so the, the video requirement is different there, but in the K-12 arena, I've heard different stories. I've heard some uh, instruct some teachers want to, the students to have their videos on. Um, and I understand. <laughs> so, but yeah, a lot of the kids have their videos on, but all you can see is from here up, you know, to the ceiling. So, uh, <laughs> I've seen that a lot. So, um, you know, I, it depends on the teaching. I'm sure it depends on the subject. But as I mentioned earlier, if the video is off you and, and the sound is off, sometimes you really don't have a good clue as a teacher as to the level of attention that the student is paying and what's going on in their lives and in their environment. I mean, Absolutely. I mentioned some of her students are watching their younger siblings while they're in. Mm -hmm. So um, if I were teaching at that level, I think I would require video just to make sure that the student is there and listening. What about instances of plagiarism and cheating? Has that increased during the virtual learning uh, era, do you think? No, that, that's a good question. Actually, we we actually had a, a full, um, you know, two-hour session discuss, discussing whether the virtual environment increased uh, cheating and plagiarism and things like that. And I think the, to answer your question, I think the bottom line was that it has not increased it significantly in any, in any way. Um, but there are lots of opportunities for it. There are a lot, there are many opportunities for it. Like, like, um, you know, like, like you said, if, you, you don't even know if the student is online so if you're not requiring them to have their video on. So you don't even know if they're listening. There are opportunities for someone else to, um, to take tests for them and things like that. Now, there are some tools and technologies. Actually, my grandson uh, is in college and he's doing a course virtually and the instructor uh, introduced, and I can't remember the name of the technology, but it, it, had, a, it had a camera that track of his eye movement, his head movement, Interesting. Track of who else might be in the room. And um, that that's a good tool for making sure that the person who's supposed to take the test is taking it. However, that's a 
huge invasion of privacy. Sure is. Like I said, it would it actually made sure no one else was in the room, and it and it um, it also took control of his computer so that he couldn't use his browser to go to go Google and answer. So. Um, you know, on, on one side, I you know I don't I don't think there's a significant increase in in plagiarism and cheating, but there are lots of tools and technologies out there that are beneficial for that. But they also have some very invasion of privacy issues. You know, in a therapy context or a clinical uh, environment, there's a lot of attention given nonverbal um, behavior, uh, and you often will give individualized feedback based on what you see. And I'm wondering if the instructors are able to do the same when they notice maybe a student is struggling or frustrated or not fully engaged. Uh, I'm thinking that some of that might be lost if obviously you don't have the, the camera on. Uh, but even so, it's only a facial or it may not even be that depending on how they have the, the camera staged. Um, and so that may be a disadvantage to the, to the instructor that they can't really gauge uh, amenability, responsivity, all of those things that they do so naturally in a classroom. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. They, and once again, that's why I was mentioning earlier that if I had that type of class, I think I would need to have the video on because you have to, you have to as a teacher, be able to pick up on those cues and know whether the student is, you know, is understanding what you're saying or even listening for that matter. So um, I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, what advice would you give parents who are assisting uh, their K through 12 children with distance learning? Um, well, it's, it's pretty much the advice I would give any, any parent is, is that I think that they really have to be engaged with what their students are doing. Um, there are so many tools and technologies out there now that help parents keep up to date as to um, you know, what, what's going on with their students. I mean, I hear stories about um, parents blaming the teachers for not telling them that um, their child didn't submit assignment two and assignment four when they had the tools right there that they could sign on to the learning management system yeah the school is using and see that. So if they're not willing to get engaged into it, in it then we'll, we'll never, uh, they'll continue to blame students and the teachers. But there are lots of ways that a parent right now can keep track of what engagement the student has in their class and their assignments. And for some, that may actually also be a barrier. It really speaks to, does the parent have uh, some mastery of technology and can they engage at that level and what is their experience working with the computer and and so depending on the parents ability uh, that might drive how successful the student will be I hear from the parents all the time and, and you know I talk about the clients who are parents their frustration with the demand that's been imposed on them uh, to instruct. In fact, I hear many of uh, people saying, well, I feel like I'm the teacher. I feel like I'm the instructor. And I have to be there all of the time uh, throughout the day uh, to ensure that my daughter or son is uh, relating to the material. Uh, and for those working parents, well, you know those arguments. How can I satisfy that uh, expectation that my child stays in the learning posture if I have to work and have all these other obligations. There's a lot of demand placed on parents during the season of pandemic. Uh, and as a result, they're expressing their anxiety, their frustration, their depression. Um, are you hearing that from parents? Uh, I, is there open dialogue uh, with, with some of the universities or schools rather? Uh, really trying to listen to the complaints and concerns that parents are lodging. Yeah, and, and I and I feel for them. We, uh, our society has allowed um, children to go to school and stay there all day, and the teachers are the ones who had to to teach and deal with the child all day. So I can imagine. I don't have any small children now, but I can imagine yeah. what it'd be like if I had that burden just kind of thrust upon me 
um, and like you said, some of the parents, the, the, the few issues, some of the parents are not technically savvy enough to, you know, to jump in and figure out how to look online to see what their student is doing. The other thing is there are some t- subjects that t- that the parents don't even know, couldn't even help the child with. Um, so it's, you know, there's that difficulty there. So I totally uh, sympathize with the parents that have to do that. But, you know, on the other side, I'm a technology person and I really am, once again, I'm glad that people are being thrust into this position of understanding how they need to learn some things in order to uh, function in our society the way it is today. And, you, you know, they're finding out how much they don't know, they, how much they know they didn't know. So right, right. Um, I'm, I'm glad that that's happening in a way. Yeah, we experienced a very informational podcast uh, several uh, shows ago. We were focusing on senior citizens, and I was made aware and I was uh, impressed by uh, our guest, the boldness with which she shared the information. Uh, I was made aware of how many uh, school-aged uh, children are being parented by their grandparents, not their parents. And, and as you described, you know, the interface with technology, how f- comfortable are they? Uh, their learning style and, and how things were presented were very different when they were in elementary school. So how do they translate that and engage in this new learning environment? Uh, and, and we agreed during that podcast that the students and young folks are sometimes at a disadvantage when there's such age difference uh, and, and such difference in the learning experience. Um, so you're absolutely right. Now, what about mental health? Those children and, uh, I guess, uh, college students who might present or have a history or are predisposed to mental health uh, dilemmas, such as anxiety, such as depression, um, what accommodations are given them if symptomology uh, begins to um, uh, materialize? How, how sensitive is the school systems uh, to relating now to mental health that's uh, influenced by this pandemic? Yeah, from what I've seen, um, both at my school at UMGC and in some of the high schools and colleges that my family are involved in, um, I, th- I think every all of them are taking it very seriously. Um, mm-hmm. The constant uh, emails uh, from the health departments in the various schools about COVID support. Um, these schools are very, very, um, I'm not gonna say lenient, lenient is not the word, but very cognizant of the fact that students may fall behind or miss assignments if there are COVID issues or pandemic issues involved in their homes or with themselves. So uh, it's, it's my sense, and I'm not a mental health um, professional at all, but it is my sense just from the um, communications that I've received over the last year and a few months about how it seems like everyone is very, very much concerned with um, providing financial support, providing healthcare support, providing information. Um, All of those things have come across my email box. Mm. Um, We needed them, but I see them and know that these organizations are taking the, the mental health issues very seriously. When you were a student, would you have preferred in-classroom learning or virtual learning? Uh, well, my, I did my all of my degrees virtually. So mm, yeah. I had some hybrid courses that I went to um, in the early days before they really went all virtual. So some were hybrid. Um, but uh, for the most part, I've done most of my education online. And, you know, I can't remember the last time I've been to a library. <laughs> I don't know when right, I'm in the right, library. Right. I mean, I did my whole dissertation without going to the library. So that, you know, says that, you know, all of the tools and technologies and resources that you need in order to get an education and to get training uh, in some areas is, is really available online. It all depends on you applying yourself. Yeah. Same thing. It's, it's there, but if you can't apply yourself and make it uh, and persevere and make it a commitment that you're going to do it this way, then you'll, you know, you'll have problems. There's definitely some advantages of virtual learning. Uh, could you list a couple of more for us, please? 
Well, of course, the, the biggest one, and this goes with uh, you people working from home also, I mean, it's convenience. It, it's very convenient for it. I was an adult learner. I didn't go come out of high school and go straight into college. I was a uh, lifelong adult learner with a child. So it, it was very convenient for me. Um, and, I, and I was able to develop my career at, while I was doing my education. So you know, from the standpoint of multitasking your way up the ladder, uh, virtual learning was very, very, uh, very useful. When is the last time you've been in a library? Give us a date in a month. <laughs> do you, do, and really, I haven't been in a library in decades, I don't think. Right. I can't. Yeah. Well, I, well, no, I haven't. I had a bunch of books. I recently moved, so I had a lot of books uh, that I was giving away. So I that's when I visited the library, when I was donating books to them. So, but I haven't, you know, if, if there's any reference materials or resources that I need, it's all online. Can you itemize some of the disadvantages of virtual learning? Yeah, well, the disadvantages go back to what we were discussing a little bit earlier. There are people who just need to be in a, in a face-to-face environment. They um, feel that that's their learning style. Mm-hmm. Some of the, and a big disadvantage I would say is that uh, if you're taking courses that require some ha- some real hands-on um, things like uh, in in my area in the area of cybersecurity we're always teaching things about networking and how to set up a virtual environment in a network and how to troubleshoot uh, networks that's very very hands-on. So some of the struggles that we have is creating those labs so that these students get those hands. It's not like we can take them into the, a computer room and show them how to plug the uh, cables and things like that. We have to teach that online. And I'd say that's been a struggle for many, many years. We're, we're there in some areas, but virtual labs are still, um, that was my, actually my dissertation topic. Um, the difficulty of implementing them is still quite not quite there so and I think that uh, extends to other careers and things that where you have to have some hands-on experience um, that's where the the the, uh, disadvantages come I mean wasn't it there there are nursing programs now that are virtual so they figured out a way to um, allow people nurses uh, people who are studying nursing to you know get that hands-on experience that they need to be a real nurse. You know, I cautiously wonder, uh, how would the pandemic have affected our students if we had not uh, been so technology advanced? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because I actually was just talking about that um, with someone saying that if this pandemic had happened in the 80s, we would really be in trouble. Um, but that we are as far along as we are now with online learning and labs and the ability to communicate and people to have, you know, broadband in their homes and able to do that. I, I, and I understand not everybody does, um, but we we would have been in a, a in worse trouble if this hadn't if we weren't as techno, technologically advanced as we are now. That that was that's a great point. Some learning would have to be on pause um, mm-hmm. because I'm not sure if, if you could have accommodated it. You know, you, you mentioned earlier one of the advantages of virtual learning is just convenience. And I know that to be true. You know, in, in the mental health clinics, um, uh, we're finding an increase in compliance, you know, scheduled appointments because of the convenience mm-hmm. and the privacy. You know, you, you don't have to kind of duck and shun when you're trying to get in the front door to go into your appointment. Um, uh, so the compliance rates have increased tremendously. And I imagine as a result of how user-friendly uh, the platform has been for some of the clients, they, they may resist going back to coming into the office. And it's gonna be interesting to see how we transition back to a new normal, uh, but one that has elements of the former state of being. The, the former arrangement. I'm certain some some of my clients are not going to want to schedule an appointment and come back into the office. And I'm sure that that's going to be true for students. Some students are, are going to probably commit to this learning style and learning arrangement. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, you know, I, I once again, I think it's gonna it's gonna depend. Just kind of going back to the telehealth thing. You know, I had to get a, a, um, a procedure yesterday, uh, a stress test. Well, I can't do that virtually, but I had to go to the office. But you know, I, I when I got out, I had some questions. I want to talk to my primary care doctor about it. I was like, oh, this is so nice. I don't have to go in to see him. I could just do a telehealth. He can pull up my record, see what happened with the test, and we can chat about it. And that's very, very convenient. Um, from an education standpoint, I, I do think that there might be students who won't go back. And we talked about some of the parents who are not engaged. There are some parents who have become very engaged, who are now probably thinking about homeschooling their kids. You know, so there is a flip side to that, what we were saying that I, you know, there may be some students who, who are excelling in this area. There may be some parents who have figured out that they can homeschool their child. And uh, once the pandemic is over, get their children involved in social activities so that they can still have the social aspects of school. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that there are some people who may um, have found this as a blessing and an opportunity to think about a new way of, of uh, teaching their children. Not all parents are disengaged. Many of them are very much engaged. Yes, I appreciate that. And we want to give them credit and acknowledge them uh, for their commitment to their students' growth and just their learning. Uh, Dr. Palin, do you think students should be required and or teachers, professors, be required to take the vaccine? Yes. And why is that? Well, uh, I was, uh, I, my personal story is that I stayed away from wanting the vaccine for a while uh, to see how things turned out. But, um, you know, after several million people got it, I figured that it was probably okay. And um, most of the, of the people in my sphere had received the vaccine. Um, so I, I went ahead and got it also. So um, I do think it's very, I think it's important that people get the vaccine. Um, I'm that they do. And I, I'm pretty sure that any teacher that I know would not want to go back into the classroom without it and without the students having it also. Um, would be disallowed from coming back without receiving the vaccine? You said they would not be allowed? Yeah. Do you think they should be banned from returning to the classroom if they decline the vaccine? No, I don't, I don't think we should ban students. I mean, there's so many aspects of, of, of how we're going to deal with people who are vaccinated and who are not. Um, there was some conversation about, you know, having a vaccine passport and how important is that going to be to travel. I think all of that stuff is ludicrous because um, a vaccine passport is probably as easy to get as a doctor's note. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Get a doctor's note from anywhere. I'm sure there'll be a black market for vaccine cards. So I think that's a waste of, of time trying to make sure that everybody has that. But, you know, I think if I were a teacher, I would want the students to be vaccinated. Now, pre-COVID, pre there were students who didn't want to be vaccinated for religious reasons or other reasons. And I'm not sure, are they allowed in the classroom? I don't know, good question. We'd have to, we'd have to go by those guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's some things that uh, just can't be accomplished through uh, virtual learning, I'm sure. For example, a couple of days ago, I, I had a, my yearly eye exam and I had to go in. I mean, I, I couldn't examine my eyes uh, you know, remotely. I had to go in and go through the routine. I must say I was a bit nervous, uh, but they were very careful with the distancing and you know, disinfecting things before and after every patient. It only allowed a certain number of customers in the store at one time. Uh, but yet the only way for me to um, uh, have the examination, I had to go into the office. Um, what things absolutely cannot be conveyed through instruction uh, by, by way of virtual learning? Yeah, I just, I, you know, like I said, the only thing that I could really think of is, you know, things that you really have to hand, have your hands on. There, there are several, um, you know, professions that 
you would not want that practitioner to work on you if they had not, if they've never had hands-on experience doing what you want them to do. So, um, you know, whatever that might be, there, there's just a lot. And like I said, in, in my arena with cybersecurity and IT, you know, just getting students to be able to have that hands-on experience with, um, you know, taking care of, of um, you know, computer equipment and networking uh, issues and things like that, it's kind of hard to simulate that. And, and we're also finding too that, you know, when these students graduate and they have not had those hands-on experiences, it's a hindrance for them to get a job. Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot of discussions about students getting their uh, academic degrees or getting industry certifications. And some, some students can come out and take an exam and say that they are a certified network administrator and they've never had hands-on experience in that network. So when they try to get a job and they don't show any background in having done that in real life, they have difficulties getting those jobs. So employers are looking for people who've had hands-on experience. Yeah, certainly. I don't know about you, Dr. Panley, but I'm in front of this computer all day long. I'm in this chair literally eight or nine hours a day. Um, is the same true for you? Yes, it is. Um, and some days, uh, you know, close to like today, it's, you know, when you've been online all day long. I mean, I am, I am actually enjoying the whole process of Zooming with people and being able to see them. That is, that's very important. I, I really enjoy that. Um, but after doing it all day long, it's, it can get to you. We, we are, if I have time, we are uh, hosting a camp for K through high school teachers in July. Okay. And uh, uh, we did it face-to-face -face a couple of years ago, but this year it's gonna be virtual. And it's gonna be from 8.30 to 3.30 every day for a week. And I, I feel sorry for the teachers in a way. Me too. <laughs> that's a lot to be online. But, you know, we don't have many other choices. We obviously are going to do as much as we can to keep it engaging, uh, uh, pro pro provide appropriate breaks, do breakout rooms for smaller groups. So there are lots of things that you can do to make it a little bit more bearable. And then we're going to do all, all we can to make it that way. One of my coping strategies, well, I'll say it this way. I've never uh, experienced my neighborhood as I have over the last six months. I know every house. I know how they maintain their lawn. I, I know when the mailman comes because I strategically take walks uh, dur during the course of the day. That's and that's my only opportunity to disengage from the computer, get a little fresh air, maybe get a little snack. Um, but uh, yes, I'm very familiar with my my neighborhood now, uh, and may, I guess I'm better for it. Dr. Panlin, this has been a wonderful discussion and we appreciate your service and, and the expertise you've shared with us. Uh, I'm certain that people in the audience may want to follow up with you and have some additional dialogue. What's the best way to reach you? Is there a contact number or website people can contact you? Sure, um, I can give you my uh, email address. Um, if you have uh, questions related to uh, education or academic in, endeavors, you can just reach me at my um, loyce.palin at umgc.edu address. Okay. Uh, That's probably the best way to reach me. Very good. Dr. Loyce Palin, thank you again for joining us. And I want to remind the um, listening audience that this is uh, a sponsored podcast between Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige uh, Community Resources. And if you want to learn more about Prestige Community Resources, you can go to our website, prestigecommunityresources.org, where you'll not only find uh, a listing of podcasts, the series, uh, but there's other information about the services uh, we provide. Uh, Dr. Palin, thank you again. And as I uh, say in closing each show, be well, be safe, be blessed. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>